Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada. Today is our last message in the series, Abraham, Father of All Who Believe. So we'll be turning in our Bibles to Genesis chapter 17, verses 15 to 27, as we listen to a message Dr. Neufeld is entitled, God of the Impossible. Many things done by God are considered impossible by human beings. You know, some time ago, I remember sitting in an outdoor restaurant with a man who would later give his life to Christ. We're looking across a river at the spectacular mountains in the distance as we ate lunch together on an outdoor patio, and we talked. We talked about what life was all about, about faith and about why anyone would want to be a Christian. And at one point, he asked me how I reconciled the natural sciences with my faith. And I asked him to consider the splendor of what we were looking at. See, at one point in time, there was nothing, not just no mountains and river, but nothing at all, no matter at all. And now from nothing comes this. And I asked him to consider the enormity of that, and he did, and the conversation went on. I mean, eventually, he embraced Christ. I've often found myself in conversations like that, and when I do find myself in those conversations, I myself am impacted. God of the impossible. A world exists rather than nothing. God of the impossible. To the ruined children of Adam, grace exists rather than merely condemnation. That's God of the impossible. In a world and culture that will one day be destroyed, and new heavens and a new earth will take their place, and to these bodies that are prone to disease and will eventually die, God promises eternal life to all who believe. That's God of the impossible. Romans 4.17 is a marvelous New Testament passage speaking about Abraham. It says, as it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. For the last several weeks, we've been studying Genesis 12 to 17, part one in the life of Abraham. This part of his life is especially relevant to believers today. That's because Genesis 12 to 17 is all about a promise long before Abraham had ever seen its fulfillment. We've especially concentrated on God's promise of a son, a promise that went on for years long before Abraham ever saw that son. But God changed his name from Abram to Abraham, father of many nations. Even as he was getting older and from a human perspective, the promise had now become impossible. And that does relate to us. Every time I'm called upon to do a funeral, I just marvel. We place a dead body into the ground and soon the rains will seep into the coffin and the natural forces of decay will reduce that body to nothing. And yet... I stand with believers at a graveside, and I promise them, based on Scripture, that this body will rise. Do I need to remind anyone that that's impossible? It is impossible, except there is a God who specializes in the impossible. So let's end our series in Genesis by coming to one of the last incidents in Abraham's life before the birth of Isaac, before he could actually see what was being promised. We'll start with Genesis 17, verses 15 to 16. There we read, And God said to Abraham, As for Sarai your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. We have been noticing that Genesis 17 is filled with names. The chapter began by God naming himself El Shaddai, or God Almighty. 
Next, God renames Abram, exalted father, to Abraham, the father of multitudes. And now comes the third name. Sarai herself undergoes a name change. She is now renamed Sarah. Now, at first, this seems like a small thing. The name Sarai means princess, and the name Sarah seems to mean the same thing. But the difference between those two names is subtle. The name Sarai would indicate she's Abraham's princess, but now the A-H ending seems to indicate she's not just Abraham's princess, but that she is a princess in a general sense. It was the ancient Christian teacher Augustine who thought that this title made her the mother of the church. He reasoned that if Abraham is the father of all who believe, then she is the mother of the same. At any rate, the passage is remarkable, for God goes out of his way to bestow an honor equal to Abraham on a woman. God will ensure that the Abrahamic blessing also flows from Sarah as well. Even as Abraham was promised kings and a great people, she shares equally in that blessing. So in that sense, she's no minor player in the blessing of God. Even though her role is different from Abraham, her blessing and her significance is equal to his. So in that way, the text signifies that Galatians 3.28 has come into play, that in Christ there is neither male nor female. But the news of this seems more than Abraham can bear. See, at this point, it might seem to us that he reacts very badly, not because of the honor afforded to Sarah, but because this is in the realm of the impossible. Genesis 17, verses 17 to 18 says, Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is ninety years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. Now, simply reading that text the way that it is, it does appear that Abraham simply couldn't believe that. It seemed impossible. But there's a real problem with that interpretation because it's exactly the opposite from what the New Testament teaches about this moment. In Romans 4, 19 to 21, Paul says, Abraham did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. And then it says, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. So from Paul's perspective, Abraham didn't waver even for a moment at the announcement. Now, assuming that that's true, and I do assume that, how then should we interpret his laughter? Isn't he laughing in disbelief? Again, Paul thinks not. Indeed, he thinks the laughter indicates the depths of his faith. But how is that so? Well, for one, please notice that what precedes the laughter, according to Genesis 17, 17, is that Abraham fell on his face. That falling on his face has occurred before, and in each occurrence, it indicates worship and reverence and a willingness to believe. So it's hard to think that he is in submission and expressing faith and then mocking an unbelief at the same time. So his laughter has to be a laughter of reverence and awe. But what does the laughter actually mean? You know, it was John Kelvin who said, not that Abraham either ridiculed the promise of God or treated it as a fable or rejected it altogether, but as often happens when things occur which are least expected, partly lifted up with joy, partly carried out of himself with wonder. He burst into laughter. 
And so if you've ever laughed because something overwhelmingly delightful has happened to you, something you didn't expect, something that was far better than you could ever have imagined, laughter then is hardly mocking. It's laughter of overwhelming joy. And that's exactly what we see here. But for those who are still not convinced, you might ask, what then does it mean when it says, oh, that Ishmael might live before you? Isn't he saying that this can't happen? But maybe Ishmael will inherit the promise. Well, no, the exact opposite is the case. Since the blessing to the world flows not just through Abraham, but also through Sarah, and not Hagar, not Ishmael, Abraham's first response is to pray for his son. He doesn't want to throw Ishmael away, so he pleads with God. He says, oh, that Ishmael would live before you. See, I can't help here but stop and and make an application. See, for those of us who are quick to point out that the blessing of God flows through Isaac and not through Ishmael, that's true, but we've only grasped half of the truth. It was Abraham's prayer to God that Ishmael might live before God as a man of faith, and in that, Abraham also prayed most fervently, not only for Ishmael, but also for all of his descendants after him. And Christians today should follow Abraham's example. It is not our call to curse Ishmael, but to pray a blessing on Ishmael. So my dear listener, I hope you see the implication of this. The gospel is so much more than telling who's right and who's wrong. I mean, Jesus would correct the woman at the well who wondered whether the right place to worship was on the mountain at Jerusalem where the Jewish temple was, or whether it was at Mount Gerizim, where the Samaritan temple lay. I hope you remember his response. It was a twofold response. He said, first of all, salvation is of the Jews. I mean, straight up, this is where the truth lies. But then second, he says, a time is coming when true worshipers will worship in spirit and in truth through a transformed heart. And it is for that reason that all followers of Jesus are called upon to join Abraham and to love Ishmael and to pray earnestly, oh, that Ishmael might live before you. In Doubt exists to bring the gospel to the relevant issues of life and faith that young adults face every day. Through a weekly radio and podcast show where I, Ryan McCurdy, will be your In Doubt host talking with recognized Christian leaders on various subjects about how young adults can integrate their faith into today's culture. InDoubt also has weekly blogs, Bible studies for individuals and groups, and live events. And the best part, it's all for free. So why the name InDoubt? Well, because many young adults find themselves literally in doubt, divided, and asking tough questions. This isn't just with reference to their faith, but with many things. Our hope is to help young adults face their doubts and provide these gospel-rich principles, truths, and applications to help them think critically and biblically. Want to find out more information? Visit us online at indoubt.ca. We've noticed that our God is the God who constantly does what we might think was impossible. That Isaac would be born from a woman whose womb was dead. A 90-year-old mother and a 99-year-old father, well, that's impossible. 
2,000 years later, a young and pure virgin living in Nazareth was told that she would have a son, even though she had never known a man. This son would save his people from their sins. Indeed, God's salvation is impossible. Or as Paul would say, none of the wise men of this world could ever have understood it. God always does that which is impossible. So let's continue to read Genesis 17. We're reading verses 22 to verse 27, that is to the end of the chapter. When he had finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. Then Abraham took Ishmael his son and all those born in his house and bought with his money every male among the men of Abraham's house, and he circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very day, as God had said to him. Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. And Ishmael, his son, was 13 years old when he was circumcised. That very day when Abraham and his son Ishmael were circumcised, so also all the men of his house, those born in the house and those bought with money from a foreigner, were circumcised with him. Now, earlier on in that day, God had described to Abraham what he must do. From this day on, all his male offspring were to be circumcised. And after God's amazing promises of that day, Abraham doesn't hesitate even for a moment. He himself is circumcised at the age of 99, a procedure that would have been replete with risks. Ishmael then 13 is also circumcised. That's just logical. But what might strike the reader as surprising is that Abraham demands that every male in his larger company also undergo that ritual. Now, years later, when Abraham's grandchildren are in the land, a granddaughter of Abraham is raped and her brothers, they're enraged. And then in an attempt to deceive and kill the rapist, they tell him a partial truth. In Genesis 34, verse 13, it records them saying, we cannot give our sister to one who is uncircumcised. That would be a disgrace to us. Now, of course, they're only trying to get him to be circumcised so that when he's in pain and in recovery, they can easily kill him. But behind this deception is a truthful statement. We cannot give our sister to one who is uncircumcised. We would never allow one of our own to marry outside of the covenant with Abraham. Now, once we see how important that matter was, we need then to read Genesis 17, 23, where we're told that Abraham circumcised all the males in his household. See, the term household here refers to every man who was in some fashion attached to or even employed by Abraham. Now, who would that have included? Well, back in Genesis 15, verse 2, before Abraham had children, had he died, his estate would have gone to a man named Eliezer of Damascus. Now, Eliezer is not a relative. Indeed, he would have been a Syrian man. If he was still alive at this time, he as a Syrian man would have also received the sign of the covenant. Further back in Genesis 14, verse 13, we read of 318 trained fighting men who were told were born in Abraham's house. Now, that would indicate that entire families were attached to Abraham who had extensive families of their own. Go back even further to Genesis 13, verse 6, and there we're told of the herdsmen of Abraham's livestock. Hope you get the idea. Abraham's house included a Syrian man whom I think probably directed all of the staff. It included members of a militia who were charged with security. It included a host of herdsmen. And that must have meant that there were other servants, which would have included cooks and others who would have dealt with a host of everyday household affairs. See, it's not possible to estimate the amount of people that Abraham circumcised, but I suspect it was well over a thousand, perhaps even double that. Why do I point that matter out? 
It's because Abraham not only prayed earnestly that Ishmael and his household would live faithfully before God, but he circumcised all the men in his household as an act of faith that they all would become faithful to the God who called him. See, by circumcising them all, we can see his concern that the blessing that had come to him would also fall on all of them. And just in case you're still wondering where all that's going, let me point out the most obvious truth. Abraham's blessing was always intended to be felt far more widely than simply his physical descendants. Consider what happened when Israel came out of Egypt in the time of the Exodus. Exodus 12, 37 to 38 says, And the people of Israel journeyed from Ramesses to Succoth, about 600,000 men on foot, now listen to this, besides women and children, a mixed multitude also went up with them. That would seem to indicate that perhaps there were a great company of Egyptians who, having seen the works of the God of Israel, decided to throw in their lot with the people of God. Indeed, that's exactly what we're told in the same chapter, 10 verses later, in verse 48. It says, If a stranger shall sojourn with you and would keep the Passover to the Lord, let all males be circumcised. Then he may come near and keep it. He shall be as a native of the land. And so provision was made to include any Gentile and fold them into Israel and allow them to participate fully in the life of the community of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And indeed, that's what we find. Leviticus 19, verse 9, even made provisions when any foreigner came to Israel that that foreigner would have the right to glean in Israelite fields and also to pick fruit at the edges of the field. And that's what's described in the book of Ruth, for example, as Ruth, who's a Moabite woman, comes to Bethlehem and finds her shelter under the wings of God. See, the story of the First Testament and the chosen people of God was never meant to end with the physical descendants of Abraham. Consider again, when Solomon dedicated the temple, I'm reading 2 Chronicles 6, verse 32, which records a part of his prayer of the dedication of the temple, and it includes these words. It says, Likewise, when a foreigner who is not of your people Israel comes from a far country for the sake of your great name and your mighty hand and your outstretched arm, when he comes and prays toward this house, Hear from heaven your dwelling place and do according to all for which the foreigner calls to you in order that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you as do your people Israel and that they may know that this house that I have built is called by your name. See, it was always the case that the story of Abraham was not just the story of Israel. It was the story of God choosing one man by whom a blessing would come to a large part of the earth. And it is for this reason that Abraham's son Isaac is great news for the world. For eventually that line, that seed, would lead to one man, and that one man is Jesus. And that's the most impossible story of all. I mean, how do you take one man, Abraham, from a country of idol worshipers and Ur of the Chaldeans and tell him to abandon all that he holds dear and to go to a strange land, and in the end, a great company of people on the face of the earth would be blessed? See, today, Abraham's impossible promise has come true. God called the things that are not as though they are. Abraham's circumcision of all his house symbolized that one day, through Jesus, all who called on the name of the Lord would be saved. And that's why, for all of us who hear the promise from God and wonder if those promises are true, it's imperative for us to study the story of Abraham. For without him, there can be no foundation to faith. But with his story, we find the beginning of why it is 
that all of the promises of God are true and can be trusted. In the fullness of time, he sent his son into the world from the line of Abraham and through this line, salvation has come to all who call on the name of the Lord. His promises, in spite of how large they are, are the only sure foundation in a world where so many things are uncertain. See, if you've come to believe in Abraham's God, you've come to believe in the only certainty that exists. And I would ask all of those who have not yet come to believe in Abraham's God, who've never entrusted their lives into the hands of Jesus, can I ask you to do that today? It's your only foundation. You'd simply get on your knees or just bow your head wherever you are and wherever you're listening right now and just simply say, Lord Jesus, I know that everything that you've promised is true, for you have come from God and you are Abraham's seed. I believe that you're the son of God. I believe you died on the cross for my sins. And even though I know I'm a sinner and I'm estranged from God, I believe that you died for me. Here, take my life, O Lord. Use it for your purposes. I surrender into your hands. Amen. Now, if you prayed that prayer, welcome to the family of God. Welcome to a promise that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Welcome to a promise that cannot fail. And walk with God. Find a place where you can worship and make sure that you're trained in the walk with God. God bless you. John, this has been an incredible series. Thanks so much for bringing it to us. So here's my last question for the Abraham series. In the end, God can be trusted. But do you think it was more difficult for us to trust in God or for Abraham to trust in God? I think definitively it was far more difficult for Abraham to trust in God. I mean, you think about the advantages that we have that Abraham did not have. Abraham didn't have the entire biblical history in which God can be demonstrated to keep his promises throughout the generations. Abraham didn't have that. Abraham didn't have uh, Jesus Christ dying on the cross and rising from the dead, demonstrating the purposes of God. He didn't know the plan of salvation. He only knew that as he trusted God, that God would forgive his sins. I mean, all of those things, things that we have demonstrated for us, Abraham only knew because God told him. So we need to be encouraged in this sense. I mean, Abraham has paved the way for us and made it easier for us to put our faith in God and to hold him uh, as our only source of confidence. Thanks so much today, John. And this has been an incredible series of the life of Abraham. Back to the Bible Canada leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. It's difficult to imagine what people you pass by every day may be experiencing in their lives. Recently, we were given the opportunity to hear a powerful testimony of a young woman who had experienced the ultimate grief, the loss of a child. I was moved by the telling of her story, and these words she spoke, my baby boy whom my body had grown and nourished for almost nine months, whose entire future I had mapped out in my mind, was gone in an instant. This is one of so many stories we're privileged to receive from our listeners, people experiencing pain and grief, but many whom discover new hope in the pages of God's Word. Thank you for the part you play in allowing the Bible to be taught through the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada. And please continue to support Bible teaching across our nation. 
teaching that brings a message of ultimate hope found in Jesus. And if you haven't already asked for our free 2019 scripture calendar, Bringing the Nation Back to the Bible, please call and ask for it as our gift to you today. Remember, call 1-800-663-2425 or visit us online at backtothebible.ca.